0: During one spree in London, I spent several hundred pounds on a book having titles or covers that somehow caught my fancy. Books on the natural history of the mole. 20 20 sundry penguin books. I thought it could be nice if the penguins could form a colony.
1: The Social Psycho Confabulation with Ben and Mr. A. So the voices in the head thing, I think reality is dialogical in some fundamental sense. Um, You could think about that as like the interplay between species and nature, like nature is selecting for certain things. uh, That's the evolutionary argument. And then... Animals are adapting to nature, so there's, like, some dialogue between nature and its creations. But I think also there's a, you know, you have a dialogue with other people and a relationship, and if you think about the fundamental relationship being between, you know, a a male and a female making a child, that's sort of like a dialogical reality that creates the world, and, like, male and female are complementary, you know, things and or beings and they come together and create, you know, new life. And so it's interesting to me. I think there's something there. So I think you can take this model of like sanity that Jordan Pearson has brought up where like in order to be truly sane, to be grounded in reality, you have to have or be engaged in a dialogue. Um, And so you can't just be out on your own, alone, and be sane. And there's lots of experience that show this. Like when people have been socially isolated, they literally go insane. Like there was a girl, her name was Jenny. It was really tragic. But she had been kidnapped,
0: I think, or something. Or she
1: was sort of mistreated and tortured by these caretakers where she was left in a room.
0: Very Yeah, very little human interaction.
1: Yeah, she wasn't socialized and whatnot as a young child growing up. And then she... She had these serious impediments, and she was kind of like a wild animal in some ways.
0: Mm. Um, That's how they say yeah.
1: Yeah, and so it's really, really sad. But the point there being, like, that you know, one of the conclusions from that, you know, case study or thing was that how important socialization is. And if you don't have socialization, what sorts of outcomes can happen? And so I think you saw, like, people would look at her and be like, she's insane in some way, you know, because she just... She's not functioning like a normal human and whatnot. And I think that's very true in a general sense. It's like in order to function well and have a grasp of things in the world, you have to be engaged with other people, sort of like, you know, trying out your ideas and letting the bad ones die and the ones that, you know, go well, then you discuss with other people, those ones live on, you know, and that's sanity. And so I think you're also engaged with that a little bit on the inside. You know, you're kind of like in a dialogue with yourself. And I think that like schizophrenia is the extreme case of that, where you're only engaged with a dialogue with yourself and you don't have true, meaningful dialogue with anyone else. You don't have actual, real relationships. And so I think the need for dialogue doesn't go away. And then, yeah, you can just end up in this endless, sputtering conversation with yourself that becomes more and more detached from reality because you are not literally making contact with anything outside of the self. Yeah. Not to say that it's all like that. I'm sure there's some genetic component, um, proclivities toward these sorts of things, personality components or whatever. But at some fundamental level, I think it's, yeah, dialogical conversation.
0: Yeah, there, there schizophrenia is kind of a broad diagnosis as well. There's, uh, I think you might call like gradations of it. Yeah, it's yeah. like so. Some people are seem to be totally unaware that they're having an unreal experience. Some people actually can notice that it's not real in a way, but it's still very real in a, in another way. But they kind of have some kind of some kind of awareness that whatever it is that's going on is not quite true or not quite real you know you can oh so,
1: that's interesting kind of like bipolar people like there's been a lot of research or actually self essays by bipolar people who know that they're bipolar and it's not normal but they're also like i can't really stop and can't
0: change yeah uh which brings me to another uh oh my god you i'm <laughs> just
1: looking around your library Okay, wait. The other thing I wanted to say about schizophrenia, there are gradations that are really interesting. So this is one interesting fact about schizophrenia. And you can actually notice this if you uh, encounter people who are schizophrenic. You may notice this next time you encounter someone. That it can either have a positive or a negative valence. And so there's what they call like paranoid schizophrenic. But there's also the opposite of that, where people are actually kind of delighted and happy by... The voices that they hear in their head—they're like their friends and whatnot—and it's interesting. And they may laugh spontaneously, and it's—you know—it seems insane in a different way, versus the paranoid schizophrenic who who thinks there's voices in their head and it's like the government or, uh, you know, weird, you know, things, aliens, whatever. You know, I like, can't figure out what's going on. They're very scared, and it's interesting that this maps onto different cultures. So in the United States, apparently. The paranoid schizophrenia is much more common versus in South America, the like kind of happy schizophrenia is much more common. Yeah, which is weird. Like, why is it happening? I have no clue.
0: Well, that it's that's yeah exactly what I was kind of hitting at because there are there are death. So just back to like the voices in your head kind of thing. I know in this book it points out some studies, and there was a study where they were looking at like brain imaging of the Broca's area, which is a speech generating area of the brain that's pretty well established. And that, um, here, I'll just read this little thing. One of McGuire's studies reported increased activation in Broca's area when the schizophrenia patients were hallucinating compared to when they were not, suggesting that the brain's mechanism for generating speech were also activated when these patients were hearing voices. So that that's a little interesting because they are not generating Speech because their mouth can be closed, but the brocas area is the speech generating area. But there's some activation in that area when they're hearing the voices, so it's like a self generated speech in the mind that is somehow related to the hearing of voices. So it's interesting, like the brocas area is for like the mechanical. Functioning of
1: speech, like the moving of the mouth and linguistics. There's
0: two major areas. Yeah. There's Broca's area and Wernicke's area, and both of them are related to speech. And you can have these different, like, aphasias, for example, is like a great way to study it. Like, if you have a problem with the Broca's area versus the uh, Wernicke's area, you can have, like, Wernicke's aphasia. I think there's, like, different terms for it. You can have, like, a totally normal brain as far as, like, you can actually be a quite like not special needs necessarily person and have these aphasias. And to the outsider, it definitely looks like something is really, really wrong psychologically Mm -hmm. with them, but it can be just this very minor thing in the brain. But people with like, I think the Wernicke's aphasia, people will just generate nonsense out of their mouth, but they Mm -hmm. don't know it's nonsense and they're not like retarded or in any way, you know, they're just they can't generate speech right. Or sometimes the aphasia is that you can't understand words. And sometimes you can understand words, but you can't understand written word. I mean, there's just all these different little tiny tweaks that can happen based on these little spots in your brain. So the brain areas are well established. But what exactly is going on is not fully understood. Because a lot of those brain experiments that you'd want to do are not ethical to do a lot of the brain experiments that that give us a lot of information are people, we can probe their brain, but the first they have to have a reason to have their brain opened So and then they can sign a waiver right, and be like, right. hey, well, can we stab your brain? And they'll be like, okay. For science. I guess, uh, for science. <laughs> sure, I guess. Okay, so anyways, oh. uh, on the yeah. bipolar front, this book, An Unquiet Mind, is written by a I think she was a like a PhD like a psych, like a real psychologist but she's bipolar and she wrote this book about her bipolar and so as far as people being aware of their bipolar and how that experience what that's really like for them this will be this is interesting for anyone that encounters it's bipolar it's a really interesting thing like just in general like if you've ever been around it's it
1: it's so interesting yeah i've
0: had i've had lots of friends actually that are Bipolar, and they're very different types of bipolar. Even what? Well, like, don't they have different
1: types, like clinically too? Like type yeah, yeah, one, yeah. Type oh, yeah, or whatever. I don't know what the differences are, but
0: some are worse than others. Some people have, um, some people have mood swings where they get super happy and then super depressed. Essentially, is like kind of one version. And that one's really difficult because the depressed is like super, super clinically depressed. And if like really bad, like suicidal kind of like really bad. And then Mm -hmm. their excitement can be really, really intense as well. So I actually knew a girl. I don't think she, I don't think she had the negative swings as much. She was very energetic, very bubbly, very excitable and A lot of that excitable, that quality that she had was very much so linked up with her bipolar. So if she didn't take her medication, I asked her about this. This is the only reason I know. And she said that she could get so excited that she like hurt people, you know, like that it gets out of control, you know, and I'm like, that's really interesting like she means like physically or something. Like, she yeah, just... she just gets, oh, you know, just like works, like gets really worked up and just so like amped, basically. Oh. That's the best mm-hmm. word for bipolar manic people that get the happy mania is like being amped up. Like, that's how I see it. And so, and we know somebody that has a bipolar that is not, doesn't have the negative swings so much, if you know mm-hmm. who I'm talking about. And you can see, how it would be worse if there was the, if the negative swing happened as well. So some people just go back like from like normal human to like amped human, normal human, amped human, normal human, amped human. And that swing can, the time of that, of each of those experiences can be very quick or can be very prolonged. It changes over time. But if you've ever been around someone, especially intimately for long periods of time or whatever, it's, such a difficult thing. It yeah. takes a lot of understanding. And this lady, um, you know, I don't know how much, how, where she was mentally when she wrote the book, <laughs> who knows, but she seems very, I, one thing that stuck out to me in the book was so interesting. Is She said she was having a, a moment and she bought just a shitload of, rattlesnake antivenom, <laughs> you know? Cause she was like, that could be a problem <laughs> if you don't have, like, she was like, Oh, but there's a shortage. So like, You're but every, to... all our thoughts on it were very coherent, oh, but the behaviors evidence, were yeah. weird. You know, she was like, I don't know. I just got this feeling, you know, that there was a shortage or something. I read something and I, I was like, well, we need to stock up on that then. And then she, she was like, let's just get, all the anti you know, it was just a weird. And she wrote about the experience. She's like, "What was going on when I did this? It's weird." I let me try to explain it to you. You, it's so hard to understand. Try to get a bipolar person to explain their craziness to you, and it you can see in their mind. I I don't know what's going on. I don't even know if we we you know collectively really do know exactly what is happening. And I think no, well. Yeah, well, go ahead. I was just this like I think there's a third. So I asked my professor this. I think it was a, I think it was an abnormal psychology course. So it was it was with a psychology. Everyone's professor. favorite. Yeah, yeah. It's like the popular one. There's like hundreds of students in that class, and um, I asked him because there's like type one, type two kind of thing. I was like, it seems like there would be another kind, you know, where they just get amped but not too amped because that's if once you dig into the types and you'll realize that they're kind of get the clinical information on it and you'll you'll have you might have the same question you're like well if there's the kind where you go way too high way too low or not so high but then way too low you know way too low you know there's kind of just 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 little tweaks on it and i was like well what if isn't there like the there was like i felt like there was a an op like there was these dichotomies and i was like i felt like one of them was missing and i was like Mm -hmm. what about this other kind where maybe you do have all that energy you do get amped or whatever and then he his point was well isn't that more of just an advantage and i was like yeah he's like so there's no pathology really because it's kind of like being um an alcoholic or something one of the requirements of having an addiction problem is that the thing Mm -hmm. you're addicted to actually negatively impacts your life so you can spend every free moment playing video games or drinking but if you never miss work you're nothing is suffering financially psychologically you're just not having any problems and it's like difficult to say that you have a bad addiction because nothing really bad is happening it's not affecting your life Right. Which
1: this is how all pathologies work. It's like it's not a pathology until it's causing problems, which is like that's the whole thing. It's like the study of
0: mental conditions that cause you to have problems. The thing with bipolar is that people can actually have that awareness of like, I have bipolar and then I can know it right now. And then as my bipolar starts ramping up, they start losing touch with the knowledge, with like the recognition that they used to have that I know I have bipolar. But so it's like, well, why are you going out and about to spend all of your money and do this thing? Or bu- why are you about to buy 7,000 bottles of snake anti-venom? And it's like, well, I, I mean, I have this reason. It's like, well, isn't that a, bi- are she being a little bipolar? It's like, well, no, I'm not. I mean, I think about it, you know, like I, if we don't get this snake yeah, venom and then it's, blah, 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 yeah. it's like, Oh God, this is, that's why bipolar is so difficult. The number one problem with those people is they don't want their, all of them Okay, wait. Don't want to yeah. take their medication.
1: Yeah, but okay. Go back to the thing you said. I think the we didn't actually talk about the variant that you think is missing, which I think, which I you're think saying, you have. The variant is that's missing is like just a, not quite mania, but a higher level of energy, maybe neural
0: energy, maybe yeah, charisma or whatever in general relative to other people. Which I think is actually really interesting because if I were like a PhD, I might pick this as something to like to look into because I'm not sure how much it's been thought about because again, it's, it's like, is it important? It's not part of the pathology, but it, it, I feel like it'd be really informative to know. So I know somebody that has certain bipolar, like it's, it's for sure the behaviors all match up and then there's, fa- it's, so it's in the family and I see it. It's in that person's family. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you know the person. I don't want to say too much, but I've seen in some people in the family more than one even that there's there's something there. There's a there's something that seems related. So it, there's it's a hereditary
1: like, element to bipolar that they've noted as well. Like it tends to be passed
0: down. And but the people that I recognize it in aren't bipolar. You know. So but I know have not been diagnosed right? But I notice tendencies. I'm like that's so. Interesting. So it's almost like there's a, a scale, you know, or a, a, a throttle cable. And in some people, that governor, I'm thinking of like a mechanical governor, just won't let like you pull a governing pull that. function or like something. It, it won't let you pull the throttle all the way, or it won't let you pull it quite as far as the other people, but you can pull it quite a bit farther and stay in that state. Because I used to think you could have been one of those people, especially early on, because you personally had something that i did not have which was like when you were doing music you could do it all the time and you do it every day i played saxophone yeah. yeah i was a musician classical musician and then you could excel in other air er- you know you were doing just extracurricular activities you had t- you want you were like hanging out with friends you were doing saxophone every day. You were doing all of your homework. You were getting perfect grade. You know what I mean? It was just like this to me from the outside. I was like, wow, whatever that is, <laughs> I don't have. It's actually what made me ask my professor the question. It was, I was thinking about what you. The I was hell like, is going on with my brother? Yeah. Or like what isn't going on with me? Like, I don't know. Because I don't have that really. I have, but there's, Other people in my family that have had other issues on the other side. Like depressive issues. Yeah. Like I am Ponca, which is what I call my grandmother. So there's definitely... But I like to think it's not as bad or not as whatever the little negative go too far things are i think maybe we all do this to a certain degree i'm not going to be like that but i feel like i do have a little bit better of a grasp you know and you can just see it over time over in families i don't know there's something more to it because it's it changes it from like oh you just have this like boom full you got the disease that person doesn't have the disease we don't know anything beyond that you know what i mean like isn't there what if we because why would you study the people that don't have the pathology but i think do study the people that don't have the pathology and see, especially in families, like, Ooh, how, like, is there something here that's actually over-regulated, under-regulated, but genetic, you know, cause there is genetic, you know, it's just yeah. interesting to me.
1: No, it is super interesting. I, well, cause that is a interesting problem. What you just said, I kind of want to parse two things. One is like just the diagnosis of bipolar disorder and that as like a problem and a thing to think about. And then, to like what bipolar actually is. So on the first thing, like the diagnosis part, I think, yeah, we study the pathology. So it's like when people have are struggling in their lives and whatnot, and they tend to have these symptoms that we call bipolar, which isn't really a diagnosis because it's, it doesn't explain what is going on, it just describes it. It means like, it literally is a description. Like the person is exhibiting two poles of behavior that they're oscillating between depressive and manic so it's not like bipolar doesn't help really explain why that's happening it just says that is what's happening with the person and so yeah I just I want to point that out to people because I get annoyed and like when people are like I have bipolar everything makes sense now and I'm like but it doesn't because it doesn't actually explain why you're doing that you know like it doesn't explain it in some philosophical sense or in like a clinical sense even so Anyway, so there's that. And then I think when you really think about it, you like, especially like me, if you've experienced a lot of people with bipolar in your life and whatnot and, and thought about these things, you notice that, oh, there's like a large variety of people who have bipolarish symptoms. And then you start to think, well, maybe everyone's a little like this in some ways. It's kind of a spectrum and you're not sure where the line is. Like,
0: where do we draw the cutoff line between people who have bipolar and people who don't? I mean, I definitely experienced the... There's some days, you know, you just wake up and you're like, eh, exactly, exactly. feel yeah. so great. And you're like, but if you're good at it or aware of it enough, you can be, you know, you can kind of be like, I, I just kind of tell myself, oh, there's a season for everything. You know, like tomorrow I'll be, I won't feel like this. And sometimes, and usually a lot of times it's true. And that's very healthy. But I also have no idea why. You know what I mean? <laughs> like a lot of times I'll blame it. I'm like, oh, a storm's coming. You know, like I think it's going to rain in the next day or two. Like I maybe the pressure is like making me feel funky because there's like weird little studies. Like if you give people Tylenol while they do like cognitive tasks, they do better because theoretically there must be, there might be some kind of underlying pain that you don't even notice you're having or that maybe you didn't even know you were attending to it. Yeah. Something like that. So there's definitely lots of factors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so so the diagnosis thing, I think it does pose the kind of problem you were talking about
1: with study where you end up only studying the people who have diagnosed bipolar. And if bipolar is actually something that's on a spectrum and everyone is experiencing some version of it, some, you know, maybe you have like, you know, you're zero on the scale, but maybe everyone's like a one or a two or five, some people are 50, some people are 100, you know, whatever. I think you can get a distorted picture of what's going on because you didn't study it's like sampling bias like if you just sampled a certain group of people and those people happen to be really out of the ordinary and then you generalize to the total population well that generalization wouldn't be accurate and so i think that same problem can kind of be happening with bipolar where we only study the people who are having problems in their life and then we base our whole understanding about bipolar on those studies but what if bipolar isn't just the people who are having problems in their life. Bipolar is actually a phenomenon, whatever it is, that's going on in everyone to some degree. And so I think that's kind of my take on bipolar. Is I think it's actually some phenomenon that everyone experiences in
0: some way. Some people tend to experience it very extremely. Well, there, and there's also the, um, there's some studies that kind of, it's a hard thing to study, but like creativity. And I think, I could be wrong about this, But from what I remember, bipolar is like one of the, maybe the only thing that they're sure has something to do with people who are creative. Hmm. You know, so that's an interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. If you look up creativity and bipolar, there's a lot of thought about that because you do have a lot of artists and. Musicians and and you think about like what maybe people some people think movies were best when they were writers in the writing room who were fueled by cocaine you know what I mean Cause, which like kind of puts you in a manic state you know and it's like yeah maybe maybe there is something to getting a little amped you know like no 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 we'll do this it'll be great oh, oh, it'll be amazing like I just have this idea you know <laughs> you just you yeah. and you have all the extra energy to manifest it and all of this but. Here, let me read you this little excerpt from this book just because I think you'll be like, wow, that is – I've seen this a hundred times over if you know someone who's bipolar in this way. Okay. Is this the book with the lady who was bipolar? This is the – yeah, this is The Unquiet Mind Lady. I, there's a lot – I won't read all of it, but I'll read two little excerpts. One is she says, during this time period of increasingly feverish behavior at work – so she's really going great at work during this mania. She's going Amazing. My marriage was falling apart. I separated from my husband, ostensibly because I wanted children and he didn't, which was true and important, but it was far more complicated than that. I was increasingly restless, irritable, and I craved excitement. All of a sudden, I found myself rebelling against the very things I most loved about my husband, his kindness, his stability, warmth, and love. I impulsively reached out for a new life. I found an exceedingly modern apartment in Santa Monica, although I hated modern architecture. I bought modern Finnish furniture, although I loved warm and old-fashioned things. Everything I acquired was cool, modern, angular, and I suppose strangely soothing and relatively uninvasive of my increasingly chaotic mind and jangled senses. Okay, I'm going to skip a little bit. Interesting. Okay, then I won't skip. Let me keep going. Yeah. uh, This is all very thematic. Okay, so. There was at least a spectacular and spectacularly expensive view of the ocean. Spending a lot of money that you don't have, or as the formal diagnostic criteria so quaintly put it, engaging in unrestrained buying sprees, is a classic part of mania. And then here's like a I can't remember what the italicized chunks in here. Maybe they're from her, like her journal or something. I'm not sure, but she says the book here. When I'm high, I couldn't worry about money if I tried. So I don't. The money will come from somewhere. I'm entitled. God will provide. Credit cards are disastrous, personal checks worse. Unfortunately for manics, anyway, mania is a natural extension of the economy. What with credit cards and bank accounts, there is little beyond reach. So I bought 12 snakebite kits with a sense of urgency and importance. I bought precious stones, elegant and unnecessary furniture, three watches within an hour of one another in the Rolex rather than Timex class. Champagne taste bubble are the surface and mania. And totally inappropriate siren-like clothes. During one spree in London, I spent several hundred pounds on a book having titles or covers that somehow caught my fancy. Books on the natural history of the mole. 20 20 sundry (laughs) penguin books. I thought it could be nice if the penguins could form a colony. Once, I think, I shoplifted a, a, a blouse because I could not wait a minute longer for the woman with the molasses feet in front of me in line. Or maybe I just thought about shoplifting. I don't remember. I was totally confused. I imagine I must have spent far more than $30,000 during my two major manic episodes. And God only knows how much more during my frequent milder manias. But then, back on lithium and rotating on the planet. Which lithium is a common treatment for bipolar, just so people know. Super effective. And somewhat mild, but somewhat not so mild. But then back on lithium and rotating on the planet at the same pace as everyone else, you find your credit is decimated. Your modification complete mania is not a luxury one can easily afford. It is devastating to have the illness and aggravating to have to pay for medications, blood tests, and psychotherapy. They at least are partially deductible, but money spent while manic doesn't fit into the Internal Revenue Service concept of medical expenses or business loss. So... After mania, when most depressed, you're given excellent reason to be even more so. So, that's written by a PhD in psychology who studies bipolar and who is bipolar. And she's telling you, you just kind of, I feel like, have to take her word for it. That's like, hey, I'm normal. And sometimes I'm not. Or I'm and, not. And this is, <laughs> and this is what this happens. This is just how it is. Yeah, like I have to buy books about penguins and consider colonies of penguins and buy snake bite kits and you know all this extra it's just like yeah i've seen that <laughs> on some level i it's funny
1: i relate to like the buying the history about the the natural history of moles of or whatever mole, yeah <laughs> yeah i i I just have weird interests, and i if you just think about something like what people are interested in, it's like, what the hell like what why how could why there, are how you could interested there be a book on it yeah, how, <laughs> yeah. who did this <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: and I think about that by myself sometimes, I'm like, I think other people probably think my interests are like like what the is going on with this person like why are they interested in that? so on some level, it's like that's interesting on another level, I thought that last bit she said, like the the having done all this stuff on your mania makes your depression worse that's definitely a part of it like i think it's a uh, it feeds it's like a vicious cycle often where the mania feeds the depression and the depression feeds the mania
0: yeah um, i definitely have uh, a a part of me is very i'm not bipolar so it doesn't it's not full fledged but there are aspects that of like non restraint maybe that i that i do have and sometimes given the right feeling or circumstances I can get a little depressed about certain things. Even if it's just like not even that crazy, you know. For me, a lot of times just when I'm laying in bed everything gets quiet and I'm going to fall asleep. You know, I'll have these like thoughts from like what am I doing? Like this is, I'm such an idiot. Like I'm never going to do this. Like what the, and a lot of times I think, it's not good. I've analyzed it and I think part of it comes at night because i'm tired and the the continuation of my whatever projects require energy and i'm really tired at the end of the day and i can't really imagine having the energy to keep going mm-hmm. but then i can tell myself well when you wake up you'll probably feel good again you know like yeah. some that feeling is coming from somewhere and i think for me personally, there's it's probably not bipolar, it's probably a combination of other things. Like I was put on Ritalin on and off as a kid, so I had elated experiences that were like pharmaceutical. There's probably a little bit of a somewhere, a natural based on family history, a natural lack of restraint in certain regards. And then sometimes those lack of restraint comes to fruition, and then some other moment comes along, and you're like, God, why did I do that? That was so stupid, you know? And it could be it could be anything really, you know. Well, yeah, just generally lots of people regret things later that they did and they're like, what was I thinking?
1: But I do want to hinge on two things. So I think two general principles that are really interesting there. One, I think you can generalize that sort of like, don't get too high, don't get too low because they'll feed each other. Like, If you get too high, you know a low is going to come. Like, And I think it's important to realize that and it's good to maintain balance in your life. Not that you shouldn't have you know, a variability of experience. But if you're amped, 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 like, you know, everything's amazing, everything's exciting, there's generally going to be a low that follows that because just things happen in life. you know, Or at least a potential for the low. Yeah, yeah. There's just things you can't control, mistakes happen, problems arise,
0: whatnot. I feel like a really natural thing that people could think of that fits this is like, sexual things that's i know it's like a weird thing to say but like even just like the refractory period sure getting really excited
1: all the anticipation and then it's sort of like doesn't really live up to maybe your fantasy or imagination or maybe just in naturally or it does and you yeah. go
0: you go on you become uninhibited in oh, the, sure, in the maybe. experience mm. and then maybe afterwards you go what why did i do that or that was wild or I, I feel embarrassed or what, you know what I mean? The yeah. Because that the refractory period is like well-known for psychological phenomena, especially in men, post-orgasm, you know, everybody makes the joke like, oh, I feel really depressed. Part of that may be like a conscience thing, like maybe maybe that's telling you don't do that then. Or I don't know what it's telling you because, sure, what yeah, if, yeah, yeah. because once you normal become out of the dip, maybe you go, oh, whatever, it wasn't so bad, I could do that again. You know, who knows where... Where that comes from, but that's a well-established non path At least not, we don't go around going, God, it's such a pathology of humankind. But it is something that people can relate to and realize that this kind of, ooh, up and down is is gonna. There's a natural tendency for it. Yeah, there's something about the anticipation. Like when
1: you anticipate things to get better and better, it's like well, things don't always get better. And if you keep intensifying your anticipation that things will get better, like that's getting higher and higher then when something doesn't get better or something goes wrong that is a far departure from your expectation and i think that that hits very hard you get really you know upset because your what reality is compared to your expectation that gap is very wide um and so that's how i think it feeds yeah each other cuz
0: in my mind i'm like well if i just keep going on what i'm doing this building the mushroom thing whatever that's you know then that's success i have to actually maintain being facetious, but I have to maintain that mania consciously throughout the day so that I can keep going and going and going. And sometimes it does border on this, but not like in her case, which is I spent all the money I don't have. I go find extra credit cards. I, you know, I really just kind of obliterate myself in my life. And some of it doesn't have a path forward. Like, what am I going to do with the 20 snake venom kits? Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's a level that that reaches that's kind of absurd. But how absurd? I don't know. You know what I mean? It's interesting. It's, 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 yeah, I don't know.
1: Well, the second thing I wanted to say, so that's kind of the first thing I think, and just as, as a generalizing principle, you know, thinking about, you know, what's going on with bipolar? Maybe it's going on with everyone. It's like sort of highs and lows. They sort of feed each other. And the higher you get, maybe the lower your lows. Yeah, yeah. Then I think, too, the other thing you said was really interesting. When you were talking about laying in bed and not having much energy and thinking to yourself, what am I doing? I can't do this, yada, yada, yada. And partly that feeling is because you have not a lot of energy, and it's going to take a lot of energy to do the things you're doing and to keep progressing forward. And partly I was thinking, well, that's just the overvaluation of the present self relative to the future self. And people talk about this in behavioral economics, where, for example, they've done these studies on how people buy winter coats. Um, And people are more likely uh, to buy winter coats on cold days. And you may think, well, that's obvious. But the finding points to this important fact that when it's colder, you think, because your present self is cold, you think that in the future, it's going to be cold. You know, it's going to be much colder because I'm cold right now. And so you sort of extend the, the present to the future and you overvalue maybe your current self, like maybe cognitively you can be aware of too, like, hey, I know that the weather, I know the climate of this area, I've lived here for a long time, blah, blah, blah. But because you're cold right now, you sort of overvalue like, oh, it's cold, like I need to buy a winter coat. And I think you see that to the extreme with bipolar people where they're really overweighting their present self Hmm. and not really aware of the future, not thinking rationally about the future, kind of underweighting their future selves or overextending the conditions of their present self to their future self. And I think that that's a general phenomenon. And so like when you were sitting in bed, I was like, yeah, that's a very natural thing to feel like when you're low energy to sort of overweight your low energy current state and say, oh, well, because I'm low energy right now, it's like, I'm, I'm not going to have energy in the future. You know, I'm never going to get have energy. I don't know when I'm going to get energy again. I don't know when I'm going to have that motivation. And I think... It, you have to be kind of cognizant of that and be like, well, in the future, you know, things are going to change. You just have to kind of trust that, like, I will wake up, you know, I'll be rested. I will, you know, the energy will come and whatnot. And so that seems like another generalizing principle to me um, that's actually been studied.
0: Yeah, because the question a lot of times laying there in bed with regard to that kind of thing, like a project or whatever, is am I really going to do this? You know, like I'm doing it, but like my present self is asking questions looking at my past self and asking questions about my future self. Am I really going to build this? Okay, well, I'm pretty much, pretty much built it now. Like once I build it, am I really going to use it? Like, am I going to spend a lot of time down there? Like, and I try to envision myself doing that a lot, you know, going down there and doing whatever I need to do in the lab and, da, 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 da. and like what, I don't do that now. It's hard to imagine because I've never had a laboratory, but now I'm going to have one. Am I going to use it? I hope so. Is it just going to become a storage shed? I hope not. You know, like, how do I know? I don't know. I know that tomorrow I need to have the feeling again, the energy again, the uh, inspiration again. I have to have it. Well, that's an interesting element. Like, I have to have it. I think that's
1: kind of like a, a bipolar characteristic, too. Like, that's the kind of statements you even hear them make. Like, I have to have, you know, like, I have to be this or whatever. And there's some sort of, like, interesting... Like, that's even an interesting element. Like, the sort of like imposition of the will. It's like you could describe it almost as like the person is not at peace or something. Like they're not letting things happen to them. They're not just accepting reality, moving with reality, sort of that dialogical thing we talked about earlier. Like you're moving with nature, moving, you're adapting. I think the bipolar characteristic one of the characteristics of it is like the imposition of like i have to have this like i have to keep going like i you know we got to buy these things because it's really great and there's not enough snake venom or something
0: you know yeah and sometimes you're right like for me i feel like i'm right i do have to have that otherwise what am i doing i'm wasting my time i'm wasting my money i'm wasting my efforts but at the same time whether or not it's what i'm doing is worth my time now or was worth my time when i did it depends upon what i'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day, the problem with the bipolar outlook on that is that what's going to happen is against my will. I'm going to be pulled away from this excitement about it because sometimes bipolar people don't even sleep, but I'll be pulled, which is and compounds <laughs> the problems. But which is
1: crazy. They've like studied this. Yeah. Just as a side note, like people won't sleep for days. It's
0: it really crazy. It's, it's unbelievable. Amazing. It's actually. like natural math. But it can still cause – the psychosis gets worse and worse with no sleep. Right, right. So sleeping is a big component. But in the case of like the snake venom or the overspending, that person is on a present self that will be reined in by the lack of motivation that eventually comes. And I think there's probably a delicate balance between I'm bipolar – and I did a bipolar thing, and it was too much. Like, that's how it was bipolar. You know, like, I put shingles on this roof. What if I was like, I have to have copper roofs? I have to spend, like, $5,000 just on the roof. Like, I could have easily done that. I probably considered it, you know? And then there's a point at which you go, no, that's not necessary. Maybe
1: that's the corrective mechanism you were talking about. It's like some people don't. It seems like they don't have that or whatever. They can just keep going with the copper roof
0: yeah so what's pulling me back and slowing me down is maybe it's uh it's like a winter and spring you know like i need you have to kind of go through cycles i think it is important for me i think somehow even though sometimes i can struggle with it i think that it's like a therapeutic quality for me to go okay okay what are you doing you know like are you are you sure because sometimes i i have to answer those i mean i have to answer the question otherwise I'll be really sad or or I'll be too happy or whatever you know what I mean so well at least to be socialized well you have to be able to answer those questions
1: because if you can't answer them you won't be able to explain them to other people which is not going to be good for your relationships like if other people you can't you know communicate why you're doing what you're doing to other people and,
0: and sometimes other people aren't reliable because let's just say I'm doing this thing because a lot of what I do like people don't get it like I told my dad about some of the business thing that I'm going through or whatever. And his, he was like, have you thought about being a truck driver? And I was like, mm, yeah, but no thanks. you know." And it's like, okay, well, what if in five years, this is the best decision I've ever made for my future? How would I know? you know?" So you have to kind of be able to rely on yourself a little bit as well and understand yourself. And I think that some people, maybe the bipolar thing, it's that's where it's, tricky you know yeah that is another interesting characteristic that's generalizable like the, her bipolar may have led her to being one of the top researchers in the field of psychology regarding bipolar i mean obviously because it's she's bipolar bipolar yeah okay but like also the fact that like she's furiously working and making a tremendous progress and outpacing everybody else and when they go on walks she's jogging and all her coworkers are walking you know she just has way more And some people are going to go, wow, she's awesome. Some people are going to go, and actually, there's a problem. And then there's her own opinion of it. And I think we, on a natural level, probably do a little bit of all that. Make some mistakes, you know, undershoot, get too depressed, don't have enough motivation, have too much motivation, get a little illusions of grandeur, come back a little bit. And I feel like the older you get, maybe the better... You, you should be trying to understand yourself in those ways and be kind to yourself and corrective towards yourself, not too disciplinarian. You know, there's like a balance. And I think that when that kind of thing gets a little out of whack, it's a little out of whack, you know? So some, yeah. so you don't want to buy <laughs> copper roofs. You don't want to buy snake venom kits. It is really interesting because there is that
1: phenomenon. Like you can be disastrously wrong about something. Like, You can be really committed, really manic about some idea and you're, like, working really hard at it, you know, go, 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 you're making lots of progress, and you're just disastrously wrong. It's just, like, a terrible idea. You know, you way overspend, or it doesn't end up working out, or whatever it is, Um, like the Rolexes. Like, you buy three Rolexes, and you're way committed to it or something, Um, and, yeah, it's obviously ruined your finances or something. But you can also be right, which is the crazy part, is, like, you can be really committed, making lots of progress, and then it, that's, like, you're sort of like a visionary. The next thing you know, you create, you've made, you've split the atom or something.
0: You know, you're like,
1: oh, I did it! Uh-huh. you know, it's like the narcissistic tendency. It's kind of interesting. Like you see, lots of leaders tend to be narcissists, like political leaders, like world leaders, and whatnot. Corporate and leaders. And there's lots of reasons. Yeah, I don't want to digress too far, but partly one of the interesting things about that is that. They're not very receptive to social feedback. And that's sort of another thing that bipolar people get when they're manic. is like they're not very receptive to social feedback. Um, And so they're very dogmatically committed to what they think and believe and what they're doing. And that's kind of similar with narcissism. And the weird part about that is, but sometimes you're right. And so sometimes it's good for you not to be receptive because when no one else believed in you... You kept doing it and it worked. And so that's like the Steve Jobs thing. It's like everybody told you you were going to fail, you know. He's a little bit of a narcissist. He's a little bit full of himself. Like he kind of believes in himself too much. He's not receptive to all the social feedback. But then he makes the iPhone and he was right. And it's amazing. And you're like, well, what do you? So there's something natural about it too where it's like maybe we need this. Like it's good for the population to
0: have some general level of this. Yeah, or even internally for you to have some of that because we're all going through it. I watched that show that was based on the Theranos chick and I was like yeah she's nuts I don't like her (laughs) and she's scamming a lot of people she started that blood company blood testing scam company where they were like we're going to take a drop of your blood and we're going to tell you all your diseases
1: and health conditions
0: and whatnot." Yeah, and I don't know if what she I don't know if what she was trying to do was possible or not but how would you know unless you tried and there's a part of me that was like what if you gave her an extra five, ten years, let her keep going? Would she? Have, would they have come up with it? Not not that she was the science behind it, but she's like the Steve Jobs. Like Steve Jobs doesn't know shit about computers. right? You, Steve Wozniak does, but is Steve Wozniak going to make the iPhone? No. He needs Steve Jobs over his shoulder going, this is what we're making. You've got to figure out how to make me this thing. Right. I need to make this. We need to have this product and uh, probably everybody around him at some point went, ah, dude, I, I don't think so. Like, I, you're asking for magic to happen.
1: Right. It's almost like how every innovation happens, you know, because it's like, honestly, every innovation at the start is a bad idea because it's never worked before. You know, it's never happened before. And so you're like, all the evidence says this is not possible. We shouldn't do it. But someone crazy is like, we should do it. You know, we can do it if we just try hard enough. You know, <laughs> and it's really
0: interesting. It's being a human so, so problematic. So it's <laughs> problematic, because you're like, what are we? What should we do? You know, there's that whole question. You know, it's like, should we make the like the modern day agriculture? It's a it's a thousand, you know, technological advancements, and it's like at a certain point, you go, I don't know, is that right? Should we be doing it this way? There's other ways to do it, but this is what happened. Uh, I don't know, you know, because at a certain, you're like, wow, you did it. You made a thing. It's amazing. It does what you thought it would. It makes everything better. Is it better? You know, I don't know. Well, there's all yeah, you could also ask that question. It's like, are
1: the innovations worth it? Yeah. Right. The other thing I wanted to talk about is the sleep component. Um, So bipolar people often don't sleep when they're manic. um, That's well documented. But I also think that's interesting and natural. So another thing I was thinking about, personal anecdote, is when I was younger, you were telling the audience about how I did all the things. I was in band. I was studying. I was getting... I was like very A-type, but I was also very gregarious. Like I did lots of student organizations and extracurricular things like marching band and whatnot. And I was thinking recently about that time in my life.
0: Is that weird to be an introvert or to be an extrovert and a type A? I don't know. That's always the pair up, but maybe.
1: Maybe. I Yeah, I don't know. I think, yeah, most introvert or most type A people are probably introverts, but I don't know. Um. My point being, I was looking back at that time and I was like, oh, my God, how did I do all of that? Like, I was not sleeping. Like, I remember vividly staying up until like two in the morning regularly and getting up again at like 630. And this is like average. Like, I would sleep on average like four to five hours a night. And... Obviously, this is crazy given the fact that I was in my teenage years, which is where you need even more sleep. Like, they've studied that, too, and they're like, actually, you need, like, 9 to 10 hours during that period of your time for optimal functioning and development. And I remember I would fall asleep in classes and whatnot because I was so tired sometimes. Really? Yeah, which is crazy. That's, like, another weird thing about that is, like, I was, like, this A-type person, you know, getting A's and, like, doing all the things, but I was also falling asleep in class. Like, this seems inconsistent.
0: I see. I didn't know that. That's actually interesting because it seems like that would affect your ability
1: right somehow no, did not affect the ability for me to sleep it wasn't like i was asleep the whole class but i just would doze off sometimes
0: so let me throw this out there just so you can have it i don't know if you're going to talk about it or not but i will mention that there is something called sss short sleeper syndrome which is a sleep condition characterized by sleeping fewer than six hours each night and apparently If you have short sleeper syndrome, you can function normally throughout the day despite less sleep. But it sounds like you actually were not necessarily functioning normally because you would actually fall asleep. I was tired. Yeah. It wasn't like I
1: wasn't experiencing the consequences of not sleeping. Interesting. But I was still able to do all the things, you know. Um, It wasn't like I would take long naps or whatever. I just would doze off sometimes for a couple minutes.
0: Um, so what was it like what is your what was going on with you yeah well so
1: this is a something I've noticed about myself um, and something I think is probably people relate to but there was a lot going on in my life at the time you know I was doing the band and the school and the whatnot I was just very excited like I really enjoyed what I was doing I loved band and I loved being a part of it I was like the drum major at one point so I was very highly involved that's why I bring up that point And I really enjoyed doing the things. Like, I loved helping the band get better. Maybe,
0: so maybe you were writing your motivation. A lot of that was coming from the positive outcomes of what you were doing. Like, hey, I'm, people like, uh, I don't know, people. Act like they like me. They respect me. That you, It's hard to, yeah. Right. They appreciate the things I do. Yeah. Even if you're hard to get along with, it's like, well, he's the, one of the best. So what am I going to do about it? You know, like no one else wants to do this work. I don't want to do this work. He's going to do this work. We need someone to do it. You're the guy. Right. You're doing it. You're, and you're getting whatever, adulations. You're getting. I got some status and whatnot. Sure. From getting what doing you want. Things. You're getting the good yeah. grades. You get to look at the thing, go, yep. Straight A's skin. Look what I did. Great, perfect. It's working out. I'll keep doing this. This is how you do it.
1: Right, and so I was getting a lot of positive social feedback. You know, like the community values this. My peers value this. Um, so there was something about it that's like I was just motivated intrinsically. I was getting rewarded for it, and so I was motivated to do it and keep doing it. Sort of like you know Pavlov. You know, the training, positive Mm. reward or whatever. Um. But I wasn't sleeping a lot. And so that's kind of interesting. And partly I notice about myself.
0: But so, And sometimes you would sleep a lot. Like on the weekend, you would be like sleeping extremely All day, sleep. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I
1: think there was, yeah, that. I was like not sleeping during the week, but then I would sleep, you know, catch up on all the sleep on the weekend. Even though that's not possible. But yes, yeah. Yeah, it's not possible. But you would think during the week it would still be impossible. Like how do you go four or five days in right. a row only sleeping four hours? Um. Yeah, because I would be like the first one to these band practices and after school and I would be the last one to leave super late and whatnot. Anyway, so I was doing all this stuff and I just had this neural energy. And I, I, noticed, I don't know if this is like a realization I've had post hoc, like now later in life I look back and apply this lens of thinking to it or understanding. But I had this neural energy that overcame my lack of physical energy where I was so excited and so motivated about what was happening socially and in my just general environment that I was able to sort of push through my lack of physical energy. And that, to me, I noticed in myself, I'm like, that's sort of characteristic of bipolar. Like, when I see other bipolar people, like, who don't sleep and whatnot, it's like their neural energy is helping them push through the lack of physical energy that they 100%. certainly do must have you know
0: yeah 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 for sure
1: but I think you notice that with a lot of people like um I think that's a general thing it's like people when they're excited about something they don't sleep you know maybe in anticipation and you got like your wedding coming up or you got a birthday or you got something amazing like a family vacation or whatever you don't sleep but you you keep going you know you're like making maybe you're getting ready for your wedding you know doing the wedding planning and whatnot and you have more energy and motivation and enthusiasm than you normally would. And that's maybe because you have like more neural energy, um, cognitive energy.
0: It's like, it's like a momentum of of sorts. Yeah. Like you're already in motion. Cause I get whiffs of that. Like at the end of the day, we come in, we cook dinner and especially during winter hours, you know, where the day is shorter, it gets dark anyways. And I can get into a, a habit where we come in, eat, you know, cook dinner and watch, Inhuman amounts of television, because we're watching TV while we eat. Then we get tired, and then we're like, time to go to bed. Maybe go take a shower, get in bed, watch a show, fall asleep.
1: So it's not good for neural energy. Probably literally changing no. your brain state,
0: <laughs> whatever. But there are times where throughout the day, I've been really productive. I'm like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going a little extra today because like I'm mm. really getting this done. I like this. This is going well, you know. But then in the winter, again, you have the short day. It kind of forces you back inside. My point being, I, I get that desire sometimes to be like, I'm tired. Like my body, but time clock is like, okay, time to go inside and time to eat. It's six 30 or whatever. But then I'm like, oh man, but I got like a couple more things. And I'll actually, I'll actually be ex- kind of, it's almost like excited about it. You know, like, well, I want to keep working. Like, I want to keep getting this stuff done. Like, I'm really close. I'm almost there. You know what I mean? So there's... I think,
1: yeah, it makes me think it's just that virtuous dopaminergic cycle. Um, So the way your brain works neurologically, you have dopamine, which dopamine is sort of like the neurochemical transmitter associated with like anticipation of goal achievement. And uh, once you achieve a goal, you know, you get like a little kick of dopamine and it actually increases the dopamine in your system, which helps make you more motivated to tackle the next goal or whatever. And so there's like this positive, you know, feedback loop. And I think almost it's just like bipolar, what we call clinical bipolar, is when that gets way out of whack. Like you've gotten too far, you know, like your dopaminergic cycles have ramped up way too much. And I think that's what I notice in myself, because I think like you've said this to me, you've got a lot of ambition or whatever. And I think I do a lot, like, relative to most people, like, I do more than most people will do, like, for at, at work, for example, you know, like, I can do more than most people. Um, and people will be like, oh, he's so motivated or whatever. But I, for me, it's not like I feel intrinsically motivated. It's not like, oh, I just wake up and I love, you know, doing work and I'm like, ah, I just can't wait to dive into the research of blah, 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 because I'm a researcher. Um, but... I get that dopaminergic activity going, and that really helps me. Like, I have to really force myself to sit down and do the first thing of the day, you know, and get the task going. Like, even doing this podcast this morning, I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. my God, I can't even start. But I notice that once I get the first thing done, it's so easy for me to get the next thing done. And that's like that – I feel like it's the dopaminergic cycle. And that – I'm just really good at playing with that, I think, with my own neurochemistry. I'm, like, good at motivating myself to do the first thing, which helps me do the next thing, which helps me do the next thing. And maybe too much. Like maybe I'm a little out of the norm in that sense. Like I manipulate or am good at leveraging that system, or better at leveraging that system than other people. Or maybe my system is a little more intense than other people's. Um, like maybe I get a little more reward than most people for doing things, or
0: something neurologically, something. Maybe or it's kind of like a uh, you know what's that that uh thing in physics where stuff at different masses falls at the same speed or whatever. Gravity that, or whatever, like everything yeah. falls
1: at 9.8 meters per second or something.
0: But maybe some people are a feather, so they have more wind resistance. Maybe some people are a bowling ball, and maybe some people are a boulder. So when you come up against things on your way down, or that momentum that you have is stronger, it can once it plows through one thing, it doesn't slow down quite as much. Because it can just roll right through that. Maybe I just don't have as much wind resistance (laughs) or something. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, that's definitely, it's got to be true. I mean, I experience it through the lack uh, maybe of ability to do that, but it makes it very clear to me that when I do do those things, when I do get started, that is the trick a lot of times for me. Because it depends on how many different things I'm doing. But if I'm doing kind of like one thing, that's where I can really see it because I'll, delay getting started, which I think I've talked about before. I'll think about it too much or whatever. But then all of a sudden I got to kind of tell myself like, go do it. Like get out there. You've got to get started because I've done it a million times where I've waited too long. And then I feel like, God, why'd I wait half the day to get started? Because once I got started, I did great. You know, I got it all done. And then I'll think, well, let's see, I wasted half the day. If I would have done that first, maybe I could have got two things done. Yeah. So I think that's the make your bed in the morning. That's what, I don't know what the, book says on that but i can imagine that it's just start off by accomplishing a goal really early like get up and do it right away
1: yeah no this is a just for listeners if you're really interested about this like the psychological component of motivation and also the neurological component like the brain chemistry part of it there's a really really great podcast between jordan peterson and dr huberman who's a neurobiologist at stanford they talk about this from both angles, where they talk about it from the biology side and the psychological side. That's on the Jordan Peterson podcast. And that's it's a lot of what Jordan Peterson talks in that book about uh, 12 rules for life. So this is like I I really do think it's like that. Like, I think there's a lot of science to back this up. Um, but I think, yeah, that's just my personal experience. as At well. At some
0: point, I think it marries up, too, with the psychological phenomenon that we've been studying a lot in recent years of flow states.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah. Because I
0: feel like you find that a lot of times, but you got to get
1: started. Oh, uh, that's so interesting because one of the things about flow states is, a flow state is when you get immersed in something so much so that you sort of lose the sense of self, like you just sort of, you're embodying whatever it is that you're doing.
0: You lose time, you lose, you lose yourself. It's like if you've ever start if you even even if you like take write write a journal or something you know like once you start kind of writing every now and then you just I keep going you gotta keep going oh like I'm just writing I'm just writing I'm just writing and then you're like whoa how did I just spend all that time doing that or
1: you sort of get lost in it the subject object distinction sort of breaks down where it's like you sort of are the writing for a minute or if you're playing an instrument like you are the music or something or
0: I feel like maybe even reading is like a a possible example that if you're reading a really you are the story yeah Yeah, you're like like that you could just it's you might think of yourself as like i I hate to read or reading is hard or reading is tedious but if if you ever read a book that really got you it's like you just carry it around everywhere you're like i'll read freaking two pages of this while i'm waiting in line at the supermarket you know you're just like i just got to keep reading i'm just engrossed in this you're kind of in like a state where you're just like go 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 and it's not self-motivating that's doing that it's like I'm absorbed in this right
1: now. Well, because the you is like you sort of lose a sense of self. So it's like, yeah, yeah. that's almost one of the characteristics of it. Because that's another thing about emotion is that negative emotion is almost indistinguishable from thoughts about the self or self-consciousness. So when you're aware of the self, that is highly correlated with negative emotion, which means maybe they're the same thing. Um that I don't know that they're exactly the same thing, but it's just interesting fact to note. And so it would make sense that in a flow state, when you're not thinking about the self, like we just said, you sort of merge with the experience, you experience a lot of positive emotion because you're not thinking about the self, um, or you experience a lack of negative emotion at least. And I think that that's interesting, just connecting that with people's goals and making progress towards goals. So people have also noted that positive emotion is associated with movement toward a valued goal both psychologically and neurologically and it's also interesting because that movement toward a valued goal can end up making putting you into a flow state which is where you lose consciousness of the self which is also associated with a lack of negative emotion so there's something very interesting how all those ideas and threads are connected to me
0: yeah no it's interesting there's definitely something to that
1: yeah the other thing I wanted to go back to um, is unconsciousness. So I thought she said something very, very interesting when you were reading that passage. This is way back to the passage. So she was like saying, like she didn't like the modern furniture or whatever, but then she found herself buying all this modern furniture and whatnot. And she she found herself rebelling against all her husband's traits that she actually really likes, like his kindness and whatnot. And to me, that is like, I've been reading a lot of Jung, so I've been interpreting everything through this unconscious lens. But to me, that's like, so characteristic of what Jung talks about, where he's like, there's some unconscious reaction to the conscious state. And so he thinks about the whole self as being the sum total of your conscious awareness and your unconscious. Uh, So there's some unconscious element of the self and some Conscious element of the self, and maybe it's not good to call it the self, but just call it like your experience, or it's not sure what you should call the containing unit of that. Um, and the reason I say that is because what you think of as yourself, like your self concept, isn't. It can't be unconscious because that wouldn't make any sense. Like, how could you have a self concept that's un that's not conscious? So right. th- there's just some yeah terminology is a little difficult there. But the point being that. He talks about this relationship between the conscious and the unconscious is that they they have sort of a complementary relationship. So the unconscious, he t- says, is always acting in like a complementary or compensatory fashion to the conscious state. And so that is what it struck me as when you were reading that bit from her, where she is having these conscious thoughts about like, oh, I like these things about my husband, I have this preference for furniture and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, it's like her unconscious broke through and was like, now I want all this modern furniture. I'm buying all this modern furniture. And I'm rebelling against these things I like about my husband or whatever. And being being unconscious because she literally said, I know that I don't like these things. So whatever is driving my behavior, I'm not conscious of. And that is really interesting to me. Um, Or in
0: her case, whatever used to be driving her, when she wasn't manic, has either become unconscious or was unconscious. Right, there's some inversion, Something's going on because I don't know if she knew when she was buying the modern furniture that she didn't like it. It was only after the fact that she was like, I don't even like this stuff. Like, why did I do this? But nevertheless...
1: Right, it would be good to get into the details there because if she knew at the time when she was buying the modern furniture and she just thought, like, I love modern furniture now... Like, that would be a little weird. But it sounds like she kind of thought, I don't like modern furniture. I don't know why I'm buying this kind of... And that's, uh, that, to me, sounds characteristic of something unconscious. And I think there's something really interesting here. There's a quote. I could go get the book. But I just it was very poetic, what I read recently by Young, where he said about this relationship between the conscious and the unconscious. He's like, the unconscious is searching for the light and to be known... And it's like emerging from the darkness. And that the the conscious is seeking depth. And so it's seeking into the unknown, the darkness. And so there's some sort of like compensatory relationship between the two. And I just thought that was really beautiful. And it's also the starting point for thinking about a lot of psychology and psychopathy there. Um, And so, you know, he would psychoanalyze that and say there's something emerging in that woman that is wants to be known. You know, there's something about, you're buying all this modern furniture. Your unconscious is trying to make itself known. There's something about you that has been excluded from conscious awareness that is trying to be known and needs to be integrated into conscious awareness. And I think that's maybe another interesting way to think about bipolar because if you generalize it and say, okay, everyone's on this spectrum – I think that that is a, a way to think about it as well, is that bipolar people just tend to exhibit really strong unconscious motivations. And I think that that is also, so we call that like literally a psychological disorder, but that's also like how Jung literally defines psychopathy is like the unconscious is trying to make itself known and that causes psychological dysfunctioning because it's in contradiction to the conscious goals and motivations. Um, and so what you need to do, the proper way to navigate through the situation is to rectify and become aware, seek to become aware of what wants to become known from the unconscious. So I think that's, yeah, another interesting and, and deep idea there maybe.
0: Yeah, which would make you ask the question, why am I doing this?
1: Right, exactly, which is, yeah, I think that's the starting point. Which is
0: something, yeah, because whether it's her you me laying in bed going, why am I why am I building that thing? Am I really gonna do this? I do recognize that there are probably things that slip in and out of my subconscious, if you want to call it that, as far as how I understand what I'm doing a lot of times. So like if I'm building this laboratory, there's probably a lot of things going on. One of it may just be the desire to accomplish something. But I'm that probably slips in and out of my consciousness because it's not complete enough of a of a notion to be adequate, to just go, well, I'd like to accomplish something. I like, you know, hitting enter, getting all the way to the end. You know, that's motivating, but only sometimes. Then there's what I might tell myself, Well, I'm interested in this thing. That's why I'm doing this. I'd like to do this. That's very conscious. And then there's also Probably even things even more deeply embedded like I won't feel fulfilled, you know, like I I won't feel like I'm doing enough what I should be doing or later I won't be happy. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of that stuff surfaces for me, but I think a lot of it is unconscious a lot of the time that I'm not really fully aware as I'm doing what I'm doing, why exactly I'm doing it. I'll even ask myself, like, do I even care about this thing? Like, I do it all the time, actually, where I just question and I don't know. I don't know. Like, what is what? Yeah, well, that's it's really difficult to find out what.
1: And this is maybe a good point to make. And is a really interesting thing to think about. It's hard to find out what you are actually consciously willing in your life, because when you start to think about it, I think. You begin to unravel and find out that many of the things that you do are driven by unconscious motivations, and maybe even all of them.
0: Yeah, even if you think it's an interest, well, I'm just interested in this thing, you could always ask why. And that might not be the thing right there. Because you could just, and if you had an answer immediately, you could ask why again and why again. And pretty soon you'd find there's a place at which I lose track of where this is coming from.
1: Yeah, and I think you can start to get into some real questions about like free will versus
0: fatalism or whatever, um, or what's the purpose of life? What what is yeah. anything? Who am I? What are people?
1: Yeah, and I don't I don't think that's uh, maybe a super productive thought to go down, but um, a rabbit trail to go down. But Definitely I think... not while
0: you're trying to accomplish things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let me stop and consider why am I a contractor? I don't know, maybe I don't want to be a contractor. Maybe it's my mother. At some point, you just got to be a contractor, <laughs> do your job, get, get, keep going. Yeah, yeah. So, not yeah, not
1: necessarily a good path to go down, but just something maybe to realize is like, hey, actually a lot of things may, a lot of your motivations and drives for behaviors that you do and whatnot may be unconscious. And maybe it's good to think about what you're consciously willing in your life Um. Where is what you're doing in conflict with your conscious goals and motivations? So it's like, I'd like to do this, but I'm not doing it. And something keeps happening where I don't do the thing that I want to do. And so that it must be unconscious. Like whatever's driving me to do the thing that I consciously know that I don't want to do. Something's going on there. And that's the beginning of like a exploration, I think, that you can go on. Personally, but also with a therapist, uh, obviously you want a good one, and maybe a psychotherapist who's going to do uh, psychoanalysis as opposed to, like, other kinds of therapy and whatnot.
0: Yeah, because we've sk- – psychology has skipped over that question because yeah. we're in – we've kind of said, ah eh, screw all that psychotherapy. How about cognitive behavioral therapy? And it's like if you really – the theory is just – How about Prozac? <laughs> or just Who cares? We just got to change the behavior or who cares? We just got to change your mind about it, you know, Mm, change your
1: appraisal of the situation
0: maybe. Right. Whereas the, yeah, because the deep dive hours long sessions of like psychotherapy and psychoanalysis are going to try to find other stuff. And uh, there's always going to, I think there will always be the question of, are you even, even in that approach, are you really finding anything or are, is the base of what you're really doing coming up with a story that's coherent and that you can accept.
1: Oh my god. That might be well, that might be all it is, but I don't know if fundamental reality is anything different than that. That's like another right. question. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean fundamental reality probably is different from that. But, but at least your experienced reality. Yeah, because fundamental reality is super structured and also seemingly chaotic at the same time sure at least that's what it seems like to us right yeah and then we are here as some like other kind of entity as a human that wants to have not wants to but has the propensity and the capacity to have these conversations Mm -hmm. and you're like that nothing else is doing this you know nothing else cares so much a lot of things as they might have once said just go according to their nature so, like, my dog doesn't run out to the backyard and get, like, super confused about anything. It just, he'll do whatever is there. If it, Oh, there's a pile of cat shit. I'll go smell that. I'll piss on this. I'll run around. I mean, he just does dog stuff. And it, th- animals in nature, they just do animal things. And sometimes they get eaten al- alive. And sometimes, you know what I mean? Just, <laughs> it's it's wild stuff. I saw a possum. I shot it because I had to put it out of its misery. It was a little baby possum. Somehow its head was open and yellow jackets were just flying away with chunks of its brain. God, that's
1: disturbing.
0: Uh, so disturbing that I literally ran to the house and grabbed a gun and blew that thing away because that was disturbing. And uh, there's order there. Everything's doing accordingly to its nature, you know, but at the same time, it to, to us we're like, ah, yikes. And maybe the opossum wasn't even saying yikes. Yeah, I don't know what that experience of a opossum even could be. But I know that a human perspective on the situation has a lot going on. There's lots of emotions, feelings. And there may be ways of being human that where you don't have all those feelings. I mean, just yeah. thinking about like if we had to hunt and kill our own food, would we eat so much meat? Probably not. Maybe not. Would we be more immune to the you know, now people can be easily pushed into veganism or vegetarianism because you're explained something that is disturbing. And sure, factory versions of that are, are disturbing. But a lot of people would say, well, even hunting, you know, like you're killing your little, blah, blah, blah. it's like, well, we're so desensitized or we are so sensitized and you could be desensitized. You might have to kill your own, you know, and, and in the, so there's lots of ways to be. But even the fact that there are so many ways to be, as just a person sets us aside, I think, sets us apart from a lot of what's going on and makes us very, ooh, I mean, it's like just intense. No, we have a very
1: rich and vivid psychological life, I think, relative to other species and animals and living things. Um, I mean psychologically in a specific sense, like cognitively and consciously. Like we have thoughts and we're aware of things on a level that I think... Other things aren't. And we're doing like complex cognitive operations on concepts. You know, we're calculating and the thinking and the reckoning, the Alan Watts quote. And I don't know that other animals are doing that. And I think that that makes us perceive things very differently. However, I think there's a other side to that. Like maybe you think that's a detriment or whatever. Like we, would, we wouldn't we would suffer so much if we didn't do that or whatnot. I, I don't have to feel so viscerally you know, negative about whatever you just described that's so awful making my stomach churn. Um, But maybe the benefit of that is is—is like it's been selected for because it helps us navigate our world and allow for human flourishing
0: and whatnot and sort of prepare for the future and make... But it's still, it's all so complicated, comparatively speaking. I mean, like the Grateful Dead say wake up to find out that you're the eyes of the world. You know, you're we're here just like observing and witnessing and contemplating it all. Whereas, you know, the monkey says, ah, we're doing that right now, but we're just making noises with our throats and tongues. <clears> throat> like it might as well just be that. But yeah. when we do it, we've structured it and ordered it so intensely, whether that's natural or manufactured, who knows really? We couldn't know that. When if anyone tells you otherwise, they're a fool.
1: Well, what do you mean? I don't know what you mean by natural or manufactured. So like, they'll
0: say, well, one day we, at some point in history, we developed language. Did we? I get, yeah, that's the question for me. It's
1: like, what would be the distinction? Because even things that are manufactured by people, like people are a part of nature. So it's like,
0: what does that even mean? Okay, a monkey says oo ooh, ah ah. They also say ee, ee ah ah oo oo. You know, and they scientists will tell us these mean different things. There's something like an, a language there, and I'm I'm sitting there th- saying, yeah, here's how it's like a language. It's a sound and it communicates something. But what it's communicating is really important. It's really the distinguishing factor. You know mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bark bark means something's there. Like That's the vivid psychological
1: life I was saying. Right. That I think we have the other animals don't. I don't think bark bark communicates such dense meaning as words and human language can communicate and is communicating.
0: Right. And I just to piss some people off, that's why I don't think evolution's right. I don't think we were like <laughs> a monkey thing one time. You know what I mean? And that this happened. Because there's, there's absolutely zero gradation of that anywhere else, that comes even mm-hmm. that even approximates what we do. Well, we see analogs, but I think that it's because we are a part of nature, and we there are things that are done that are actually far beyond because we don't understand nature. Like the the beehive is phenomenal. The, that hexagonal structure is scientifically. Very interesting, very conservative, strong. In fact, it's possible they couldn't have come up with a better way to build. But they don't know. Bees are doing something according to nature. We are here almost outside of nature in in a sense that like we could have come ac- come across that structure and found interesting things about it on our own or by observing the beehive and studying the stuff that's in nature. It's like we're made in the image of God.
1: Yeah, well, I guess for me it doesn't—I don't think that it means evolution isn't real. To me, the principle of evolution is, like, that we're having a dialogical relationship. The living things in the world are having a dialogical relationship with nature or whatever. I don't think evolution is, like, an explanation in that sense, just to clarify for people. I don't think it's, like, really satisfactory. Because then you still wonder, like, why Why did the things that got selected for get
0: selected for? It's, it, the thing that's ridiculous to me about evolution <clears throat> is the th- same thing that's ridiculous to me about the Big Bang. It's like, once upon a time there was nothing, and then bang, and there was everything. And the way that scientists have come up with, you know, the fix on how come nothing is that there wasn't nothing. It was just really small. It's very dense. And it's like that's ridiculous. That is just as ridiculous as nothing. You know Sure.
1: Oh, you mean how come something? Um, not how come nothing. My favorite but,
0: quote ever. Yeah. Pourquoi il y a quelque chose plutôt que rien? It's like, why is there anything instead of nothing? Right. Well,
1: I agree with you on that. I and that's what I was trying to say is like I don't think evolution is a satisfactory explanation to the why question. I think it's a description, an accurate description of what is going on like the sort of mechanics of reality like a descriptive of like we are in a relationship with nature like we have to adapt to nature nature is always changing we are always changing in a complementary way now you could ask why and why why not something than nothing why the ways does it change you know why does it change in the ways that it changes I don't, evolution to me is not an appropriate – it's not a satisfactory answer to those questions. I don't think it's trying to be. And I think people who have these sorts of arguments are conflating it with that. And the Big Bang maybe is another – I also think the Big Bang is similar. I don't think it actually tries to answer the question why. I think it's just
0: trying to describe the mechanics. And I don't have a qualm with that. But they have a qualm with, like, for example, creationism. They think that somehow if everything went from nothing to something with the Big Bang, that's not ridiculous. But a God is ridiculous. It's like,
1: huh? It seems like the most ridiculous debate to me because God isn't anything. It's like, it's just a stand-in concept for like what it means for there to be something rather than nothing. It's like, God, you know? And you're like, well, what is that? It, like, prove it scientifically. Like, what is it? Describe it. And it's like, beyond our knowledge, you know? It's like, we're just putting a, a placeholder there to say, Something is outside my knowledge. I am articulating that. I'm putting a landmark there just to say I'm humbling myself before what I don't know. And I think yeah. that that is what science misses. It's probably
0: a fallacy, too, to expect that there's an answer to the question. There is no explanation that will ever answer that question. There cannot be one. its It doesn't work in the human mind that something... Sure, I'd agree with you on that. It, that yeah, things, yeah. why something rather than nothing, you cannot fathom. And so that's terrifying. And some people now, in a very scientific manner, postulate that the, re- the way things could have kind of no origin and be so difficult to understand for us and why that question is there and unanswerable at the same time, yet still valid, is because we're in a simulation. And so you wouldn't create an infinite history that you don't need it to make sense which just avoids the question by the way it's a convenient way to avoid answering and it. is again just as fantastical and it relies highly on faith that well once i get once i break through the matrix then <laughs> right, i'll understand yeah. it's like yeah just like maybe when you die you'll realize you were wrong about everything and that god made everything and was holding it all together like you don't know it's just as crazy to say that no just some other people made this and that's why we don't understand how come something with nothing it's like no because they'll have to answer that question too and it's like well there's some kind of limit on our mind because it wasn't programmed it's like you are literally describing god you're saying there's other people there take the full and total utter place of what god is in another universe or world or something that somehow doesn't have these fundamental problems and these fundamental questions. And it's like, right, right, you're crazy, that's loony, just as loony as anything else that you claim to be demolishing with your logic and science. You know what I mean? It's like... Right. And not to say the pursuit and the engagement
1: in scientific acts and in science is bad. Like, obviously... I think it's good to pursue knowledge and seek the unknown. But then I think when you put science as like an idol and say that everything can be explained through whatever we quote unquote are calling science, which it really just becomes a liturgy. You're like science is just the liturgy of all of the articles that have been written and ideas and whatnot. And that explains reality. And then you're like, well, no, that's impossible. We don't know everything about reality. There's always things that have been yet to be written and things we don't understand yet.
0: It's like, have you ever done the thing where you click on hot links in Wikipedia and eventually all of them, if you click on them enough, you'll always end up at philosophy?
1: Which is always the epistemological question, like how do we know what we know? How do we know anything? I mean,
0: that's part of the. I mean, or it could be an ontological or theological. You know, there's all sorts of base questions there, but that's. But I my belief is that they all do get back to some unanswerable question, and the, or a belief system. Well, that's the other thing, and it's an unanswerable question. It's what's at the bottom of the hole, but people have plugged the hole with something. Every time. I don't even think they always know that they did. Right. The belief systems that you have. Yeah. And it it's a super hardcore dead end. Big Bang, evolution, these types of fundamental theories are right after the real question. But they are a backstop to say, this is where we start. And it's like, but that's so not where we start. That's just like saying, I can do everything God can do. Well, I think...
1: That's an interesting point. I think Jordan Peterson has tried to make this so many times in his books and his podcasts and whatnot. It's like, is at your own peril that you assume that is the end of the question? Because whatever your fundamental reality belief system is, that's going to tint and shape everything in your life. Because everything is going to be seated in a narrative, in a belief system, your whole experience, what you do, what you think is good, what you think is not good. And so if that fundamental foundational belief system that you have is entirely devoid of any meaning and any humbling before what you don't know, I think you're doomed to live a life that's also devoid of meaning and probably misguided in a thousand and one ways um, and ends up with tons of negative unintended consequences. And you may spend your whole life wondering, how did I end up here? Why does my life keep ending up like this? And I think you have to always come back to that question, which is like, we're all wrestling with, what do we believe?
0: Yeah, and by the way, we're not in a simulation. <laughs> by, by the way, that's also the most ridiculous theory I've ever heard. It's ridiculous. And the fact it's that ridiculous. they can have scientific proofs for it, like that Nick Bostrom's ridiculous, or I think that's who Those it was. people should be laughed out of academia. I'm sorry, but They're like, like, the math says it's true, and it's like, the math, then if the math says it's true... That's the most likely place that you could find yourself as someone doing that research to have a moment of clarity and to realize that your your God, math or whatever it is, is totally a deceiver. And it's your fault for believing it because it's like if we're in a simulation. What is it a simulation of? Do you have a right to exist? Also that question. So if you if we break out of the simulation somehow, do you even exist or are you just on a computer let's say you're plugged in like the matrix and there's a physical version of you does that have the right to exist if it does then it's all very much like the matrix you have to get out and you have to start a war and you have to kill you the creators but the creators at that point what are they if you just accept that these people then create the placeholder of God, then you recognize that these people's desire ultimately and always will be to kill God, always. Because what they don't want is to be fooled or controlled or have any need for morality and all of these things because it's just, it's like the same Harris take, like, well, just isn't your propensity to suffer enough? And it's like, yes, it is to make arguments and ethics. I think so. But to have the tr- to know the truth, no, it's not enough. It's just a really good starting point. That's why I think Sam Harris is likable in some senses because he is willing to think in that way. He is willing to kind of give a reverence to humanity, to people, and p- otherwise, who cares if people suffer? Well, I care because I can suffer, and I don't like it, and it's bad, and the fact that it feels bad makes it bad. And that may be a fundamentally true thing, it's an interaction that you're recognizing, but I would say it's stitched into the fabric of reality, not into some random thing that just humans happened upon one day that just happened to them. It's, a, it's part of the fabric of actual reality that you didn't make. The cell phone was already in the dirt and in the math and in the all the stuff that does function in this realm. But again, that pivotal question or that fundamental question of how that's possible is far too incredible and unbelievable beyond, literally beyond human comprehension. Not right now, but forever. You can never answer that question because you only have what you have. The material's here. That's all you have. And you've already said there's nothing else but physical stuff and materialism and physicalism. Well, in that case, you'll never actually find the thing you're you're looking for. You'll never find the most interesting thing because you can't find it like that. And I think there used to be a marriage of science and kind of a, some kind of metaphysical, a, a beyond the physical. They're, they kind of thought and knew there's something, there's something else. There's a... Well, it's always a striving. It's always a searching
1: for it. It's like a never arriving and never knowing truly, but it's a... Yeah, it's a searching for.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think maybe disregarding it is what gives us the hubris that cr- creates a lot of the problems and turmoils because there you couldn't fight so fever like our culture is crumbling before our eyes. And it's like, it couldn't be that way except for hubris, except for your convictions of how right you are and how perfect your thoughts are and based on what again? And... You wouldn't even have the conflict, even if you disagree with others, if you just didn't have the hubris. You could just have your own opinion. Like, how come 10 years ago, you didn't feel the urge to cut the eyes out of someone who's had a different political opinion than you? But now you do. Like, lots changing. And that's odd. And I sense it even in myself. And you got to ask yourself, where's all this stuff coming from where's everything coming from and there's a lot of answers to the question actually just like there's a lot of answers to how a cell phone works and how to make one and how to get it to that point point. and there's a lot of unanswered questions but just recognizing that alone i think is enough because i think if we knew found discovered everything basically like i've been saying we'd still have the fundamental problem of we can't actually manufacture reality without the reality that exists already And so just that should be the humbling factor that goes, poppies help pain. Praise God, you know, I'm being hyperbolic and religious. But it's like, that's a better, I think that's a better take on it than praise me, praise science. Science has provided this for us. It's like, no, science has discovered it for you. It didn't provide anything. Mm -hmm. It's not the creative spirit of the world. It's a fantastic, science is a discovery. First of all, it's a method and it's a discovery and it's amazing and it's fantastic. But science without humility is one of the most dangerous tools ever created because look what you can do. You can do anything. You can. You can do a lot. Not anything. You can't structure. You can't manifest reality. Or you can't rewrite reality. Yeah, you can't yeah. create that's why I love like the poetic version of like how they describe God like in the Bible there's all sorts of different descriptions of him but like the one who was and is and is to come like that's a deep definition it's all time frames what is God I am tell them that I am it's like what no that's what it is it is that's what reality is that's what it is it is it am You know, it was, it is, and it is to come. Or, you know, the the one before time, the one who wasn't created, you know, it's like there is something and that I don't understand how it couldn't be. It, It has to be true. It literally has to be true. It's literally a spotlight on the fundamental question is what God is, if he is the one that was, is, and is to come. That's the, that's the question. And it's the answer and it's beyond your capacity to understand. And that's literally how come it's God. And it's like, what does that, does that mean man in the sky who hates you and wants to strike people down who don't believe? Like, no, that doesn't mean any of that stuff. I don't know. That's not what that is. I don't know. That's all this other stuff that people hate and that scares people and that they attach to it and makes them run away from the question. But all of that was probably just much of it may be misunderstanding, but there are fundamental things. And I just think that that's what I'm only trying to make that point to just point out how cool people are. I'm with you. Are you? I'm with you. You seem Yeah, skeptical. that was
1: long. And I got to go. So I'm going to wrap too. it up here. But the only last thing I wanted to say about the simulation theory, I did a bad job. I think you should try to be unbiased and unjudgmental when approaching any idea. And it sounds like I'm being biased and judgmental. I probably was. Because I think there's something interesting about simulation theory. There's something about simulation. Like, we experience a simulation of reality. Our own experience is, like, simulating what, you know, actual ultimate reality is, the objective world around us, how to navigate it, whatnot. So I think there's something there. What I was really laughing at is, like, the people who say that, like, we're all in a computer program and, like we are literally like ai bots or you know like npc
0: that is just silly like me. we're so. like quite literally that and it's like yeah boy you've literally answered a question with you just like right click copied reality and then pasted it over there <laughs> yeah. and you're like see we answered it it's like that doesn't answer anything which is funny cuz in a meta way or a meta way that is a simulation like that's actually the, that's the theory yeah. that is the theory the theory is <laughs> You could copy and paste that shit infinity, and it's like, yeah, yeah uh, okay. But at some point, is like the first people to do that made out of like burning balls of gas in the sky? Yeah. Like what? I don't <laughs> like, understand. Like, are they star? Like what? Who started the simulation? And it's like yeah. even the Matrix kind of sort of tries to explore that, and it's like ooh, the architect, yeah, yeah. you know. And then you don't even know if the architect's like a real person. You're like, ah,
1: Oh my god. It's yeah. a, it's don't amazing. don't go into it. I want to save it for another episode because there's a lot there. Disclaimer. The Matrix is a fantastic and I love it. Well, this has been a long meandering conversation. Sorry listener, but I hope it was interesting. I thought
0: it was pretty good. I I tried to talk less. I don't know if I did. All right.
1: Well, we'll catch you later. Bye. <laughs>